Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. I'm Jordan McGillis, economics editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Gary Leth. Gary is a world-renowned travel expert. His blog, View from the Wing, is among the internet's most widely read on the topics of airlines, hotels, and credit cards. Like countless other millennials, I've used Gary's View from the Wing and a few other publications to help optimize my travel strategy to make the most of my points and miles. But I think what sets View from the Wing apart is Gary's insights on the travel industry itself versus just the consumer experience and his understanding of how politics and regulation affect that industry. Gary, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here and chat with, I mean, there's a lot going on in aviation. Absolutely. First and foremost, we are recording this podcast just a couple of days after a frightening incident on an Alaska Airlines flight. Uh, there was a Boeing 737 MAX taking off from Portland, Oregon, and it experienced a blowout, as they're calling it, with a door literally popping off of the airplane at about 16,000 feet. Gary, what's going on here? What does this tell us about that airline? What does it tell us about Boeing? Give us the rundown. So the, the challenging thing, of course, is that we are talking not that long after it happened. And by the time your listeners hear this, they may know more than we know today, right? Because there's certainly you know, things in the investigation that haven't been released yet. But in terms of what just setting the stage, um, the 737 MAX 9 is a large aircraft that in some configurations fit a lot more passengers. And when you have a lot more passengers in order to evacuate an aircraft quickly in an emergency, you, know, you need another exit door. Otherwise, you just get too much of a uh, of a, uh, a log jam in the aisle. And in a, the configuration that you're going to find from a U.S. airline that has a first-class cabin, extra legroom seats, you're not going to need that door. And you're not going to want it because otherwise, if you're using it as an exit door, that interferes with the configuration of seats and how much room you need between them and parts of the plane. So the, instead of an exit door, they had um, a they had a plug, and that plug is bolted in. We know that those bolts were all loose. Let me intervene right here. So when you say a plug, you mean like this? There's a shape that could fit a door, but instead there's a non-door part that is placed to fill that gap, something along those lines? That's accurate. Okay. That's accurate, right? And so um, we know that the you know, that that's what came out. And we know from inspections of other 737 MAX 9s that more uh, similarly situated parts had loose bolts. And so it appears at this time that there was something you know, systematic in the way that it was put together that caused loose, uh, you know, that it wasn't secured properly uh, in multiple aircraft. And so, you know, they're still learning more, but, you know, that does seem to be a problem. That's what grounded the aircraft. And in order to get the planes, you know, back into the sky, you know, what has to happen is the manufacturer, in this case, Boeing, you know, works with the FAA on a uh, procedure for inspecting uh, inspecting the aircraft. It's called a you know, multi-operator message that's going to go out from you know, Boeing approved by the FAA to the um, aircraft operators. Then with you know the FAA, there's going to be uh, a memo that details how the airline can comply with 
its airworthiness directive, right, to ensure that it is safe to operate the aircraft. So, you know, they're obviously going to be inspecting that issue. They're going to um, learn whether there's anything related to that issue that also needs to be uh, inspected or modified. And there will be specific procedures undertaken to ensure that that does not replicate. And of course, they're not going to issue those memos until they're confident uh, that that is in fact the case. This isn't going to happen again. So we don't, by the time this is, we, we hear about that, uh, by the time listeners you know, will hear our discussion, the plane may be back in the sky. As of today, Alaska Airlines has its fleet uh, grounded uh, through, you know, only through January 13th. Okay. And maybe- Then what about maybe, this aircraft and its operation with other airlines? Right. So in the United States, we have uh, we have Alaska Airlines, we have United, uh, and they're the two largest operators. Uh, but you have other airlines uh, around the world that fly it. Uh, Copa flies. You're referring to the largest operator of the 737 MAX 9? MAX 9. Okay. That's correct. Uh, so Delta and American Airlines, for instance, do not operate the MAX 9. I see. Southwest Airlines does not operate the MAX 9. The American operates the MAX 8. Right, that was the one that was uh, grounded uh, famously after uh, incidents a little over four years ago. Um, but the Max uh, Nine is operated in the U.S. by Alaska and by by United. It's operated by you know other carriers around the world, but the you know, number of them in 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 use is you know much much smaller. And the initial you know, each, each airline com- will comply with the rules of its own regulator, following the lead uh, of the FAA here, but. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, these planes are are grounded pending inspection and instruction from you know Boeing as signed off on by the regulator and to in terms of how to ensure that there's not a problem again. I see. Okay, I didn't realize that the Max Nine was uh, so distinct from the Max Eight and the incidents a few years ago with Lion Air and Ethiopia Airlines. Uh, how different are these aircraft? Is this a, a newer iteration that? has come um, in the aftermath of those previous incidents or were they already out in the air as well? Well, so it's a newer iteration, but the primary difference is the, you know, is the length of the fuselage. It's the larger version. And it's because it's the larger version that can fit more passengers in a dense configuration that in that, you know, dense configuration uh, has this optional extra exit door, right? So if you had Mm -hmm. more passengers squeezed in, You'd need that extra exit door, but the dash eight is smaller uh, and wouldn't need it. So you don't have that same plug door. Now, uh, another way to understand it before the max is the max is built on basically the same uh, fuselage as the earlier 737 and and the 737 next gen planes, the 737, 700, 800, 900, and the 737-900 that predated the max has this uh, same plug door configuration. Okay, so it's not a new, it, this is not new or unique to the MAX itself, but it this issue has only surfaced in the MAX 9. Okay, I'm sure we'll learn more uh, when the reports begin uh, to inform us on this particular incident as they took off from Portland, but I'm surprised no one was, was ripped out of that door by the depressurization. Can you explain how is it, I don't, I don't think you're a physicist or anything like that, but can you explain how it is that a door can be off of a plane at over 10,000 feet and nobody is pulled out? 
Well, so first, I mean, we got lucky um, because you didn't have anyone. So there were, you know, seven seats unoccupied on the aircraft and you didn't have anyone, it turns out, in the seat next to that, right there. Um, you people, you know, wear seatbelts. The um, pilots uh, worked with air traffic control to descend rapidly once the air, once the you know, plane depressurized. Um, they wanted to get down to uh, a, a lower altitude. They, you know, people wore seatbelts. So, you know, most of the time, right, the seatbelt doesn't super matter. But when it does matter, it matters a lot. There were things that flew out of the aircraft. There was a shirt that flew out of the aircraft. There were two iPhones that flew out of the aircraft. You know, we found it. We found an iPhone uh, along grass that had fallen from about 16,000 feet. And amazingly, I mean, it had a a phone case on it. Amazingly, it still worked. Uh, it was able to power up and it had half its battery. They knew what it was. I need to know who made that phone case. I want it. Right. Yeah, we, we haven't heard this in there was on, on, on the phone case that I've seen yet, but we probably will. But um, you know, the phone had on it the um, you know baggage information for that flight. It was an airplane. That's amazing. So it was functional. Uh, so, you know, this is, yes, this is dangerous. Uh, yes, it could have been far worse. Let's switch gears a little bit from airplanes to airports. We at the Manhattan Institute have a lot of our scholars in and out of the city, and we've all been quite impressed by the new terminal at LaGuardia. Uh, from the consumer standpoint, it is gleaming. It's beautiful. It seems well-staffed, but you've told me offline that you're not as impressed perhaps by the operational aspects of the terminal. Tell me why. So. So I think it is a beautiful building and the old central terminal was ugly. Um, it had leaky roof. I mean, it was, there's no problem. There's no question that the physical infrastructure of the airport was beyond its useful life. But in terms of what's been done, I don't feel like LaGuardia has been revolution. I you know like it. I prefer it for you know, trips to New York. But to me, the fundamental idea of an airport is to get somewhere quickly. And so I judge an airport by how effectively it helps people to do that. You want to get to the airport uh, quickly. You want to get through the airport quickly and you want to get out of the airport. And, you know, LaGuardia isn't very good at that and hasn't been made better at that. You know, what we what we didn't do is uh, build a new runway. We didn't do anything that improves air airspace capacity. Right. So we're not really doing a whole lot that you know, reduces delays in and out of LaGuardia. And with this new terminal, look, there's longer walks. Uh, it takes longer to go from curbside through security to the gate. Now, that makes a little bit of sense. You know, what, what we've basically done. Well, those are my opportunities for commerce and lounge stops, Gary. Well, let's see. Here's the thing. Commerce, I mean, nobody really says, I want to go to the airport in order to engage in high-end retail shopping. Right. Like that's not the purpose of the thing. And in, but the reason that we have this high end retail shopping is because um, you know, air trap air travel passengers skew uh, higher income and airports and airlines take a percentage of the revenue that's going, you know, that's generated. And so you, you know, go through a maze of retail to get where you're going in order to sell something to you. Um, and what we've done basically with LaGuardia is the way that we finance this next new construction is by um, engaging in public-private partnerships. And you sell effectively the future 
income stream off the terminals, right, in exchange for getting uh, folks to put up the money to build the thing. Now, that's great as far as it goes, but you can only sell that income stream once. And so you want to make sure that you're getting the best bang for the buck. And to me, best bang for the buck would have been things that uh, improve getting to, through, and out of the airport quickly rather than just having a nice facility. Now, in fairness, taxiways are somewhat improved there. But you know, LaGuardia is one of these places where you're, you get very used to, to hearing board the plane and you, know, you're, you think you're ready to go and the pilot comes on and you hear, well, ladies and gentlemen, and that's always the worst thing that you can hear. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're about number 35 for takeoff, <laughs> right? Um, and we don't have greater throughput for getting people in the air. And as I say, you now have uh, a, a longer walks even to get there. So much prettier facility like it, like the water feature aesthetically, uh, but I'm not sure that it accomplishes very much. Okay, so for someone such as myself who does not live in New York, flies there with some regularity, works in Manhattan, what do you think is the best airport for the efficiency uh, metrics you're looking for to get me from home through that airport to the office uh, and then back out of town? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, you know, National Airport Reagan National in D.C. Um, it's you know, close to the city center. Uh, it's you know well connected. Uh, it is a fairly short walks from uh, the from the curbside to the gate, and in fact, it turns out that it's uh, one of the least delayed airports in the country over the last year. You know, so I, I think it performs very well. I actually think that the recent changes that they've made, they call Project Journey, have made it you know marginally worse, but it's still quite good. Uh, so that that's one of my favorites. I, I think that. You know, one of the important things that you think about with airports is that, generally speaking, the airport doesn't know uh, who it's who the people are that are going through it. You're the airline's customer, not the airport's customer. The you know, the airport, you know, is trying still to you know maximize revenue for a variety of reasons. We've seen moving walkways removed from the Dallas Fort Worth airport, from the Chicago O'Hare airport. Because passengers were getting on those walkways, getting where they were going too quickly, and simply mm. bypassing the shops. That's interesting. And the revenue, the revenue generation, you know, was was lost. The airport generates revenue off of it. It's you know the airlines can benefit from that as well. So you know who is the customer? It's not necessarily the the, the passenger. And you know in the U.S., um, you know airports are you know. You know, generally politically managed. Um, you know, so they're often, frankly, not managed that well uh, compared to in some other places. We're, we're sort of a we, we're somewhat of an aberration in how airports are uh, owned and managed with relative to the rest of the world. In the same way, uh, we have much greater you know, direct government control over security or traffic control than we do in much of the world. Back to to New York City, though, uh, are any of the three main airports? better than the other two? Oh, gosh. I mean, any as a general proposition, anything managed by the Port Authority of New York or Jersey isn't going to be very good. Mm -hmm. And is that the case for all three of them? Newark, yes. JSK, and LaGuardia? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, now, I will say that the once you're inside some of the terminals, again, they can be quite nice. And not everything that's wrong with these airports is attributable to the airports or their management themselves. Uh, New York 
uh, has some of the most challenging uh, airspace to operate in. Uh, the FAA is short air traffic controllers in the New York area, especially. And so they've asked airlines to cut back on their flying because they just don't have air traffic controllers to manage the airspace. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and from, you know, air from FAA air traffic control hiring uh, to the way that they allow people to transfer, it's very cumbersome, to an insufficient, you know, geographically based uh, pay structure. So you don't make enough more in New York to make it worth living in New York as an air traffic controller. Uh, so they have a hard time recruiting there. They don't have enough people. So you get delays, you know, you get fewer flights than you should for reasons having nothing to do with the airports themselves. Yeah, I think that Newark in some ways is worse uh, the way their runways are configured. They just do not do as well during bad weather. United, which is by far the dominant carrier there, you know, really suffered over the summer in its operation, you know, because of weather. Uh, explain to me how, um, how could one airport in the same metropolitan area suffer worse because of weather? Well, so they're getting basically the same weather, but... You know, the we, you know, issues like the direction of runways, the spacing of runways. Look at San Francisco, for instance. They have two runways that are just they're simply too close together and that you don't have the spacing when you get fog off the bay and you get fog off the bay in San Francisco a lot. And so you're not able to take full advantage of the runway capacity that you have. And there's and it's really, really difficult to you know build new runways, even if you have the land in many jurisdictions. It's a you know, time-consuming process. There's a lot of veto points in the process. And so you know, we kind of get stuck with much of the infrastructure that we've got. And so if I were you know, looking to which airport is most likely to let me you know, operate in bad weather, I'm probably going to prefer to be at JFK okay. out of the three, but I'd prefer to go to LaGuardia most of the time. Look, if I live in if I live on Staten Island, right? I'm going to go to you know Newark. Um, it's just it is clearly more convenient. United has cars all over the city telling you how you know Newark is more convenient to get to than the any of the others. You know, I, most New Yorkers that I talk to don't agree with that, but um, you know it's really where you're coming from. But in terms of how well it operates as an airport, yeah, you know, I, I, su I suppose maybe at some level JFK marginally better, but but their terminals aren't connected, so you don't want to be trying to connect, you know, between airlines that operate out of different terminals. Okay, good to know. Uh, changing gears again, there is chatter right now about credit card legislation uh, that would significantly disrupt the points and miles game. What is going on in Washington? Why do why are these changes being proposed, and what exactly are they? So Senators uh, Dick Durbin from Illinois and, uh, and Roger Marshall from Kansas have proposed legislation that they argue would create uh, more competition in credit card processing. What they want to do is require larger banks, those with over $100 billion in assets, who are issuing credit cards to have those credit cards able to be processed on you know, more than one network. Basically, you can't just be a Visa or MasterCard. You, if you issue a Visa or MasterCard, you're also going to either have to process on American Express or on the Discover Network. And so the idea being that um, if you can't be exclusive to a single network, that they would, um, they, they believe um, there will be a competition that drives down the price to process. That's the that's the the claim and the theory. Now, this is something that's being pushed for by um, 
uh, large retail establishments and, and small retail establishments who are paying for credit card interchange. They, of course, argue that the benefit accrues to the consumer, uh, which I don't generally buy. You know, what they want is for the government to require that a payment method cost them less. Um, you know, they, they want lower, lower costs by law, uh, effectively. Um, now, th there's a couple of arguments that they make. You know, they say that, you know, look, we have these higher costs, and so we pass these on to the consumer. And that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because, generally speaking, it's less expensive for many merchants to take credit cards than it is to take cash. Um, Can you explain explain why that might be? Yeah. So um, if you have a clerk at a register, that clerk may make incorrect change, give back too much to the customer. That clerk may stick some of the cash in their pocket. If you're taking large amounts of cash, um, you may have higher insurance costs because you're also a target potentially for theft. And so there are, you know, it, depending on the study and the industry, I mean, it's very variable what cash may cost you, but it may be 4%, it may be 9%. It's certainly not free to take cash. Checks are, you know, people bounce checks. You actually do have to, you can pay to insure against bounce checks. So there are costs associated with any mechanism that you're using to, to transact. I, um, and, you know, roughly speaking, about 60% of uh, you know, interchange is rebated to the consumer. Uh, in the form of rewards, um, what the legislation is likely to do is you know, redistribute income both from credit card processors and from consumers to retailers. Uh, and credit cards aren't just a payment mechanism; I mean, they bundle, you know, financing. They're also a status symbol, of course. Yeah, well, look, there's <laughs> status. There's um, rewards. There's also consumer protections. You know, consumers get uh, the ability to dispute a charge when they're paying by credit card. And you can also do that with debit, but the money has already left your account. So you've got to rely on mm -hmm. um, you know, the money, getting the money put back in, as opposed to never having paid it in the first. There's a lot of benefits to the consumer you know, for paying by credit card and benefits to the merchant too, not just in terms of the cost to accept card, but also that consumers who are paying by card and not constrained by the cash in their wallet tend to spend more. Um, so they're, again, they tend to get you know, higher ticket you know, purchases this way. And so there's a benefit to, you know, to, you know, to this. And, and the way that I think about it is, look, it's an incredible innovation that you can take a, a, you know, whether it's a piece of plastic or something electronic on your phone and virtually wherever you go in the world, it's interoperable, right? And you swipe, a, 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 you know, swipe a card or charge your card um, and get billed for it later. And the merchant gets uh, funds deposited in their bank. That is a benefit kind of all around and to the economy. And uh, and I'm loath to sort of push the button and say we ought to substantially mess with that for the, you know, narrower, more provincial interest of, you know, of, of retailers um, who suggest consumers are going to benefit, but, you know, they kind of have to benefit more than uh, they're benefiting from rewards as those disappear. Um, in order for the, the claim of a zero benefit. I, I certainly would tend to agree with your perspective on that. Uh, all right, Gary, last question I've got for you. I believe you just got back from a trip to Europe. Where are you headed next? I mean, I've got uh, Caribbean for warmth in the winter, um, but I have also trips booked to, um, you know, this, every year I visit family in Australia 
Um, I did just come back a, a couple days ago uh, from Europe uh, in November. I was in um, uh, Dubai and London uh, as well. Uh, so I'm, I, I, I sort of get around. Okay, I'm getting personal here. How many lifetime flight miles do you have? I, I don't know. Uh, no. Actually, I'm not. I'm not one of these folks that track, you know, every flight and and to, does a map of these sorts of things. Um, I am almost going to hit my four million mile status on American, but not all of those are flight miles, right? A lot of because you know, because twelve years ago, until twelve years ago, you could you know accumulate miles for other things that would count towards it. Uh, and for a brief period of time, your credit card spending um, during the pandemic counted as well. Um, I've got lots of flight miles and lots of elite nights. Extraordinary. Something for me to aspire to. I'll never get to those heights, but uh, it's it's wonderful to know that someone is enjoying those perks. Um, all right, Gary Left, thank you so much for joining us today on 10 Blocks. Again, Gary's blog is View from the Wing. You can follow him at Gary Left on the website, formerly known as Twitter. As always, you can follow City Journal on the website, formerly known as Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram at City Journal underscore mi and of course if you enjoyed listening today please like rate and subscribe thank you listeners and thank you gary Lath. thank you thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with city journal editors contributors and special guests